Uh, Would you take the word of God with me and turn to Psalm 7? Psalm uh, 7. As you turn there, we're going through uh, both the book of Psalms and the book of Proverbs on Wednesday, interchanging those. Uh, We're going to spend probably the next two weeks in Psalm uh, 7, and I think it'll take me longer than just dealing with this evening with the entire psalm. We're going to only deal with the first five uh, verses this evening uh, from uh, Psalm 7. But if you notice here, before we go into the reading of the psalm, uh, it mentions here sometimes there is a, um, I guess, maybe a reference to maybe the context of uh, an individual psalm, uh, tells us uh, who the penman was, some cases David. Here it says, uh, notice, Shigion of David, which he sang unto the Lord concerning the words of Cush the Benjamite. Now, uh, I, I do want to say that those titles are not... Uh, necessarily, they're not inspired, okay? Uh, people through, uh, probably through uh, the centuries, uh, based on the study of God's Word, uh, you know, and, I, and I'll show you why I think it's a good, uh, it's a, it's a good reference to, to, to make, as we'll go over this morning, uh, go over this evening. Uh, but I, I, I want to look here at that word. It says, um, Shigion, uh, the word Shigion here, or its plural form, is used actually once, uh, Shigionoth, in Habakkuk chapter 3 and verse 1. Uh, that word basically means a song of trouble and comfort. Uh, the word basically denotes a lyrical poem composed under strong mental emotion with a often a complementary music to accompany the psalm. And so the idea here is that the music that accompanied this psalm, uh, when it was composed, it was composed to reflect the emotion of the psalm. Now there's no doubt as we will read this psalm in just a moment, you can read the emotion within that, but also we know that music itself, without words, does convey emotions. And I think that if we try to do music biblically, uh, that it should be consistent, the music should be consistent uh, with the words. And um, let me give you an example in our hymnal. You don't have to turn there, but we have the song we sing uh, often around Resurrection Sunday, maybe on Resurrection Sunday, we sing the song, Christ Arose. Now, if you remember the way that song starts and the way it ends, you find some variations within the music itself. And so the, the beginning of the song is more a somber, sorrowful, uh, low-key uh, beginning, but when you get to the chorus, it's triumphant, and the music conveys that. Um, if I could illustrate it to you, you can hear it in the music. Uh, it goes something like, low in the grave he lay, Jesus my Savior, Waiting the coming day, Jesus my Lord. And it's not just the words of the death of Christ, but the music itself matches the tone. But when you get to the chorus, the music changes. And on the chorus, it communicates the music itself, not just the words, communicate triumph, right? Up from the grave he arose. Uh, With a mighty triumph o'er his foes, he arose the victor from the dark domain. Uh, 
and he lives forever with the saints to reign. He arose, he arose, hallelujah, Christ arose. Then you go back to the verse, and it's back to the somber, and the music matches that. If you reverse the music, it wouldn't wouldn't match. So the idea here, when you look at the psalm, the the idea of the the, uh, Shigion of David here, uh, which he sang unto the Lord, so it's not just the words that he penned down, but there is a melody that went with it. And so after verse 5, if you notice, there is that little word, sila. And often that was used in music as a pause, but often also as a transition. And so the beginning of this psalm, the first five verses, we're going to find them to be very somber and sorrowful. But from verse 6 to the remainder of the, the chapter is triumph. And so you have in mind when you read that psalm, The music, the way that David would sing it, he would begin by being sorrowful in not just the words, but also the music. But then he would change the song into triumph. And so, uh, just to give us a little bit of uh, 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 background here and the general idea of this psalm. Now, let's stand together as we read the psalm, uh, Psalm 7. If you have your place there in the Word of God, we're going to read down to verse 17. So notice Psalm chapter 7, verse 1. And the Word of God says, O Lord my God, in Thee do I put my trust. Save me from all them that persecute me and deliver me, lest he tear my soul like a lion, rending it in pieces, while there is none to deliver. O Lord my God, if I have done this, If there be iniquity in my hands, if I have rewarded evil unto him that was at peace with me, yea, I have delivered him that without cause is mine enemy, let the enemy persecute my soul and take it, yea, let him tread down my life upon the earth and lay mine honor in the dust. Selah. And so the opening is sorrowful. But now we change, there's a pause. And now we change to triumph. And notice he calls on the Lord, Arise, O Lord, in thine anger lift up thyself because of the rage of mine enemies, and awake for me to the judgment that thou hast commanded. So shall the congregation of the people compass thee about. For their sakes therefore return thou on high. The Lord shall judge the people. Judge me, O Lord, according to my righteousness and according to mine integrity that is in me, O let the wickedness of the wicked come to an end, but establish the just. For the righteous God trieth the hearts and reigns. My defense is of God, which saveth the upright in heart. God judgeth the righteous, and God is angry with the wicked every day. If he turn not, he will, uh, uh, will wet his sword. He hath bent his bow and made it ready. He hath also prepared for him the instruments of death. He ordaineth his arrows against the persecutors. Behold, he travaileth with iniquity and hath conceived mischief and brought forth falsehood. He made a pit and digged it and has fallen into the ditch which he made. His mischief shall return upon his own head and his violent dealings shall come down upon his own pate. I will praise the Lord according to his righteousness and will sing praise to the name of the Lord Most High. 
I want to bring your attention here as we look at the first part. I want you to notice verse 3 and verse 4. Three times the psalmist is going to say, if, three times. Notice the first time, verse 3, if I have done this, if there be iniquity in my hands, if I have rewarded evil unto him that was at peace with me. And so I would like to deliver a message entitled this evening, If There Be Iniquity in My Hands. The idea here is that the psalmist is asking the Lord to deliver him. But what he is saying in effect is that, Lord, if I am being tried right now because I have done wrong, then do not deliver me. That's what he's saying. If this is the consequences of my sin, God, then do not deliver me. But if I have done right, then deliver me. So I'd like to preach this evening on this. If there be iniquity in my hands. Let's pray. Father, we thank you this evening for your word. Lord, give us understanding this evening. Help us to examine our own lives in conjunction with David here who penned those words. And uh, may we learn something that would be valuable and practical to our lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. As I mentioned here, we can divide this psalm into two main parts. The first part, verse 1 through 7, where basically uh, the psalmist presents his circumstances, his sorrow, and at the same time, his self-reflection. And I think that's a good thing for us, all of us, to do to when we are dealing with difficult circumstances and when there is sorrow in our lives, it is a, always a good time for self-reflection. Whether it is God trying to deal with us or whether God has allowed something in our lives uh, to help us and to benefit us. We know as believers that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to His purpose. And the Bible says, and we know that. We shouldn't doubt uh, the efficacy of the circumstances and how God wants to use those to strengthen us and to mature us as we seek to serve the Lord. And so the end of the first part here ends with Selah, which is a natural break. It's a, a pause in this psalm. Um, this is the idea here is that this is right after the psalmist has had a time of self-reflection. And I think it's, there, there's something that we learn here. It is often important. There's, there's something important because we are so busy that sometimes we fail to just pause. When there is time of self-reflection, when we are dealing with difficulties in our lives, if we're not careful, we might become more frantic and more dispersed and more active. And often I think it's good to just pause. And here the psalmist, after self-reflection, he pauses before he goes into uh, this, uh, the, the idea of triumphing here in the Lord. And so immediately after the selah, the tone of the psalm changes. Now the second part, from verse 6 down to verse 17, uh, we see here that this is about his triumph, uh, his confidence. And when I say confidence, it's not confidence in himself, but really confidence in the Lord. Uh, and also he ends with praise. Notice he begins in verse 6. He says, Arise, O Lord. And he ends this section with, with I will praise the Lord. And so it's the uh, section of triumph there. And so what we find here, and by the way, we find this in many psalms. 
And I'm reminded of what Jesus Christ told His disciples uh, before His departure. And you could read John 13 through 17, Jesus Christ was preparing His disciples and He basically told them that He was going away. It was expedient for Him to go away. It was necessary for Him to go away that He might send them the Comforter. Then He told them in John chapter 16, verse 19, He said this unto His disciples. He says, Do ye inquire among yourselves of that I said, A little while, and ye shall not see me. And again, a little while, and ye shall see me. Verily, verily, I now I believe He's talking about He's going to die, He's going to be raised from them, and then He's going to see them, and then He's going to go away. And so, a little while, they're not going to see Him, but then they're going to see Him. And so, He announces that, and then He says this, Verily, verily, I say unto you, that ye shall weep and lament, but the world shall rejoice, and ye shall be sorrowful, but your sorrow shall be turned into joy. Your sorrow shall be turned into joy. And as I, we think about those words of the Lord, we actually find this practically throughout the book of Psalms. Where often the psalmist will begin a psalm and pin the words down, and then as you see the psalm progressing, we see the sorrow turning to joy. And so there is uh, something practical for us to learn. And uh, I want to begin by just studying the first five verses by asking ourselves this question, how can our sorrow be turned to joy? How did the sorrow of the psalmist turn to joy? And so I believe that as we look at our text, we can uh, say two things, and I'll give you the two points and then I'll expound on them. First of all, we see that sorrow can be turned to joy when there is a personal relationship with God. Sorrow can be turned to joy when there is a personal relationship with God. We'll look at that. And then the second point is that sorrow can be turned to joy when there is a pure conscience. A pure conscience. So let's look at the first one here. Sorrow can be turned to joy where there is a personal relationship. Now, uh, before we get to verse 6 and he says, Arise, O Lord, and he ends the psalm with praising the Lord, it is evident that the psalm, uh, the, the psalm begins by expressing his struggle, by expressing his, his heart and uh, the difficulties that he's going through. He talks about in verse 2. Now it's important here because I believe that many of the psalms, although there is an aspect where the psalmist will ask for a physical deliverance, I believe that the majority of the time, the psalmist is asking for deliverance over his, uh, for his soul. And that's what he does here in verse 2. He says, Lest he tear my soul like a lion. So the idea here is that those who are persecuting him, David is not, not so much fearful as to his physical death, as much as he is fearful of his soul going astray. And his soul being crushed to a point where he is no longer serving the Lord. He uh, says uh, then in verse 5, Let the enemy, so he says, If I have done those things that they accuse me of, if I have done those things, verse 5, Let the enemy persecute my soul and take it. And yea, let him tread down my life upon the earth. And so he said, look, even if it ends with my life being taken, then so be it if I am responsible for that. 
but notice it says, let, let the enemy then persecute my soul. And I think we all understand that there is both a physical aspect to our life where we can feel and sense physical pain, but there is also an inward pain that often is much more unbearable than the physical pain itself. And that is the pain of the soul. Uh, by the way, the Bible has much to say about that. Uh, I, I believe that when your soul is in health, it does affect your physical body. Uh, the Bible talks about that. Uh, so uh, one verse we could think of is that um, the cheerful heart doeth good like a medicine. And so uh, I do believe that you know much of our society today who deals with... Um, uh, all kinds of uh, illness and all things that are going on in our lives can often be attributed, not always, but I'm saying often they can be attributed to a problem of the soul, uh, the pro problem of the mind. You know, we have the highest rates today of mental health issues. Well, why is that? Well, I mean, you could blame it on many things, but, uh, you know, I believe that many of those things uh, are spiritual in nature and cannot be treated by, with a pill. And uh, I believe that there are spiritual answers in many of those uh, areas. Now, as we look here at the first few uh, verses here, namely verse 1 and 2, uh, we see here that the psalmist has a personal relationship with the Lord. You notice the language he says in verse 1. And so there's, notice there's three things we notice in verse 1 and 2. We notice, first of all, his call. Notice he says, O Lord, what's the next two words? My God. He doesn't say, O oh Lord God. He says, O oh Lord, my God. And so it uh, indicates to us that this is personal, that the psalmist has a personal relationship with his God. He calls him my God. There's the title, O oh Lord, which is Jehovah God, the self-existent one. And he calls him who is uh, independent of everyone. He says, you are my God. And uh, it's important here to see that the only way that the psalmist can have his sorrow turned to joy is first of all because he has a personal relationship with Jehovah God. He, he knows God. Uh, obviously, he is praying to God because he knows that God will hear his prayer. And so he comes to God because of that relationship. And uh, we, we, we have to understand in our lives that much of what happens in our lives and what happens to our soul and the struggles that we experience inwardly when we deal with difficult circumstances will all grow out of, how we deal with those things will grow out of our personal relationship with God. You see, often we, we, we may seek to detach our lives from God and we may think, well, I'm going to resolve problems on my own. God can't deal with this. God can't be that answer for me in that time. It's interesting as you look particularly at the life of David. David, it seems to, to me, came to, to the Lord for all kinds of different issues. Uh, not just particularly when he was running away from Saul and he needed deliverance, but many different circumstances uh, from discouragement for, to being chased uh, by King Saul for his life to confessing his sin after going some time uh, with unconfessed sin. And so we see here that how he was able to deal with that grew out of his relationship, his personal relationship with God. And so that is his call. He calls unto God. And by the way, that's always a good way to start when you need God to say, Lord, 
my God. You're my God. Isn't that wonderful that He is our God? And by the way, we could even, in the precious sense, in Hebrews, uh, I mean in Romans chapter 8, uh, we said, the Bible says that the Spirit of God bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God, and therefore we cry, Abba, Father. We can call out to God. Why? Because He is our Father. I think that often people do not see in their lives sorrow turned to joy. Why? Because perhaps there is a missing element in their lives, and that is they haven't cultivated and developed that personal relationship with God. This is without fail. Uh, if somebody comes who is struggling with all, the, the, whether it's something that is physical in their lives or something that is spiritual in nature or they have personal struggle or somebody de- dealing with depression or somebody dealing with conflict in their life and they're, they're having a very difficult time with it and they come to me and say, well, pastor, how, how can I deal with that? You will find consistent every single time. If I ask this question, and this is a very simple question, But let's not minimize the importance of answering that question. I ask the question, do you faithfully read your Bible and pray? You'll find the answer every time when people do not get the victory over their struggle, every single time and say, no, I don't. There is something that happened. And by the way, I've I've talked to other pastors and asked them the same question. Have you ever met somebody who is not able to get victory over difficulties in their lives, who was faithfully praying and reading their Bible every day? So I haven't met anybody like that. It is not that those who read their Bible and pray and, and, and develop and maintain a relationship, a personal relationship with the Lord, that they don't go through difficulties. But the point is, their sorrow can turn to joy. But those who do not develop and maintain that relationship, are not able to see their sorrow turn to joy. And so we see His call, but then we see His trust. And so He says, O Lord my God, He says, In Thee do I put my trust. Now that expression is very interesting here, because the psalmist, when he says, In Thee do I put my trust, he's basically, the expression literally means, In Thee and Thee only do I put my trust. And so we not only see his call, but we see his trust. And so understand here, the psalmist is basically saying here, he's saying, God, you're the only one I can trust. He's even saying this, I don't even trust myself. I I, I am not independent of God. I fear that there are too many people who, and by the way, that's part of our human nature. We live often... We try to prove to people, without saying it, that we don't need God. That we are self-reliant, that we can do this, that we can pull ourselves up by our bootstraps, and we can get through this on our own. The psalmist says here, in thee do I put my trust. I'm not trusting myself, I'm not trusting anybody else, I'm trusting God and God alone. And I suggest to you here that the the psalmist's sorrow is able to turn to joy because his trust is exclusively in the Lord. Exclusively in the Lord. So we see his call, his trust, but also we see 
his need. And so he says, O Lord, my God, in thee do I put my trust. Save me from all them that persecute me and deliver me. So he says, notice, two words here. He says, save me from them that persecute me and deliver me. Now, the question here is we, we have to ask ourselves, okay, what is he wanting to be saved from? What is God saving? What is God delivering? Well, notice verse 2. Lest he, now there's no specific name mentioned here. We'll talk about that in just a moment. Lest he tear my, what's the next word? Soul. So what is the psalmist asking to be delivered or to be saved? What is it? It's his soul. He's not, per se, asking necessarily for a physical deliverance. For a physical salvation. He is asking for the deliverance of his soul. He says, lest he tear my soul like a roaring lion. Uh, like, a, uh, like a lion. Not roaring lion. Sorry, that was just the habit of First Peter, right? Like a lion. Now, this would be a reference to David who is a shepherd. And so we know he's had the experience of killing a lion and a bear. He knows how a lion deals with a sheep. And uh, the lions would... Uh, notice, tear, he says, they would, he mentions the word tear, my soul like a lion. And so the lion would not only kill the sheep, but he would tear, completely tear the sheep apart. The bones broken, and I don't mean to be too graphic here, but flesh everywhere. That's how, how a lion tears apart his prey. And so here he says he is concerned what he wants his soul to be delivered. Why? Because of, from being rent in pieces, the soul. Uh, while there is, notice, none to deliver. Now, it's interesting because he says, save me and deliver me, and he's referring to his soul, lest my soul be torn in pieces, while there is none to deliver. I think he's referring to the fact that even though I may not be physically delivered, I sure would like my soul to be delivered from being torn in pieces by mine enemy. You know, and I'm convinced here that as we think about our lives, I think that one of the greatest aspects that the devil tries to get us is not physically, but spiritually. Why? Because that often has a greater impact than any physical trials we may experience. And the example that I would give to you is Job. It seems to me very clear that there's nothing that the devil could do to Job that, was that would cause Job to curse God and die. I mean, the worst of physical difficulties. But it seems to us as we read through the book of Job that as he works his way and finally he's able to have that fellowship with God and he hears from God uh, that although he was, by the way, when he heard from God, he was not physically delivered, he was not physically restored. But you know what was delivered, what was restored? His soul was. And then God healed him physically and blessed him physically. But it was not until his soul was delivered from all the anguish that he was experiencing. And so here his need is a, a need of his, uh, of his soul. So we see that sorrow can be turned to joy where there is a personal relationship. That personal, is that personal relationship is, is evidenced here by the psalmist's call, his trust, and the expression of his need. 
the expression of his need. I am um, convicted here by, by that reference. How many times do we prioritize to God our physical needs over our spiritual needs? I wonder how often we pray for God. Uh, would you provide for us financially? Well, we have this need over here. Would you provide for us this? Well, we have somebody that's sick over here. Would you uh, heal that person? I wonder what is the ratio in our lives of how often we pray for our spiritual needs and for our souls and when we pray for all the other physical needs. And I'm not saying we ought not to pray for physical needs. I am saying, though, that as you read through the Word of God, the majority of the time that prayer is made, it's often made for for spiritual needs, particularly in the book of Psalms. And so there seems to be an emphasis here. It's as if the psalmist time and time again says, Lord, I may not experience physical deliverance, but I sure would like my soul to be in health. So we see here that sorrow can be turned to joy when there is a personal relationship with God. But secondly, sorrow can be turned to joy when there is a pure conscience. Now I want you to notice now we come to verse 3. And, and notice here he, he's referred to being persecuted from the potential of his soul being torn apart like a lion tearing a lamb, rending it in pieces. And now he, he says now, he, here's, here's the, the, the psalmist, basically his conscience, his, his self-examination where he says in verse 3, O Lord my God, if I have done this, if there be iniquity in my hands, if I have rewarded evil unto him that was at peace with me, yea, I have delivered him that without cause is mine enemy. Let the enemy persecute my soul. So what, what he's saying here is he's dealing with being persecuted, but here he comes after basically calling on the Lord. He said, I'm trusting the Lord. I have a need for my soul to be delivered. But here before he goes into the part of the triumph, he is very careful to first examine his own self and to say, wait a minute, I just want to make sure before I ask anything of God, that if I have done this, well, what is referring to? Well, evidently, there's the idea here that somebody had accused David of doing something. Somebody had slandered the name of David. And so David is saying to the Lord, if I have done the things that I've, that I've been accused of, then let me be persecuted. That's what he says. Now, where can we relay that in God's Word? Well, turn with me, if you hold your place there, turn with me to 1 Samuel chapter 26. 1 Samuel chapter 26. We, we, there might be a few indications in the Old Testament. Um, one of those is 1 Samuel chapter 26, where we find here... All right, so if I had done this, what is, well, somebody had said he had done something or he was trying to do something. He was being uh, accused of something. And evidently he says, he is honest enough to say, if I've done those things that God let them persecute me and may my end be death. Notice with me 1 Samuel chapter 26. Um, this is the second time, the second attempt no, there was no attempt on his life. But the second time that David had the opportunity to kill Saul, but he did not kill him. Now remember the first time, uh, maybe we'll look at that in just a moment. Uh, basically Saul had said, you're going to be king. You've been gracious to me, you've rewarded me good for evil and so on. This is the second time. 
Saul is still chasing David to try to kill him. And notice here the conversation. Let's begin uh, reading in uh, verse 15. David said to Abner, now Abner was in charge of right keeping King Saul safe, and evidently Abner had failed. He was sleeping in protecting the king. David says to Abner, Art not thou a valiant man? And who is like to thee in Israel? Wherefore then hast thou not kept thy lord the king? For there came one of the people in, the, in uh, to destroy the king thy lord. This thing is not good that thou hast done. As the Lord liveth, ye are worthy to die, because ye have not kept your master the Lord's anointed. And now see where the king's spear is, and the, and the cruise of water that was at his bolster. And Saul knew David's voice and said, Is this thy voice, my son David? And David said, It is my voice, my lord, O king. And he said, Wherefore does my lord thus pursue after his servant? For what have I done, or what evil is in mine hand? Now therefore, I pray thee, let my lord the king hear the words of his servant. And here's what David says. If the Lord hath stirred thee up against me. Notice what he says. Is this what God has stirred you up to do? Are you following the Lord's command and doing what you're doing? What a convicting statement. He said, let him accept an offering. And so he says, well, there's a way to reconcile it. If God has told you to pursue me because I've done something wrong, I'll be willing to, to, to bring up an offering. I'll be willing to, to appeal to say that I was wrong. If the Lord has stirred you, does this come from God? He says, but if they be the children of men, what is he saying? If it is the children of men who stirred you up, evidently, it was not just Saul that was jealous, but some people in the courts of Saul were stirring and chirping in the ears of, perhaps it was Abner, stirring Saul to pursue David. They had slandered the name. Somehow Saul had convinced himself, whether self-deceived or deceived by other men, that David was out to kill him. That, that, that David wanted to, uh, to take the throne by force. And now the second time he proves that to be false. He had two occasions to kill him, and he didn't do that. And so he says, who is it that stirred you up, Saul? Is it God or is it men? Boy, that, that, that's, that's a whole other message, but that's good preaching there. Wouldn't it be good message on who stirs you, men or God? Which one stirs you the most? Notice he says, if they be the children of men... Cursed be they before the Lord. For they have driven me out this day from abiding in the inheritance of the Lord, saying, Go serve other gods. Now, um, we won't go there for sake of time, but we know that there had been the first attempt in chapter 24, verse 6, where, you remember even David, it's interesting, we're talking about the conscience. Remember David when he cut a, a small piece of, of robe off the king? The Bible says he was smitten in his heart. <laughs> he felt guilt over that. Remember, his men were trying to, you got him. God has delivered the king into your hands. Kill him. And David says, no, I can't touch the Lord's anointed. And even when he just cut a small piece off his robe, he was smitten. His heart was smitten. He, he, he thought, he said, well, that's, I guess in a sense, that's touching the Lord's anointed. And I shouldn't have done that. The point here is we go back to Psalm chapter 7. I think that David here, no doubt here, he says, O Lord my God, if I have done this, if there be iniquity in my hands, 
If I have rewarded evil unto him that was at peace with me, evidently that was the accusations, uh, that he did iniquity, that there was a thirst for blood in the hands of David, that David was rewarding evil to Saul who had been at peace with him. If I had done this, then what I'm facing then is just, but he had done this. So in this psalm, he begins here, before he talks about the triumph, he, 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 he makes it clear here, God, my, my conscience is void of offense toward God and toward men. You know, Paul said that in Acts chapter 24, verse 16, he says, And herein do I exercise myself to have always a conscience void of offense toward God and toward men. And so sorrow can be turned to joy when there is a pure conscience. A pure conscience demands introspection. A pure conscience demands introspection. Introspection how? Well, toward God and toward men. You see, we look at ourselves and our lives. By the way, Paul, it's interesting, many times when he spoke of his ministry, he spoke of having a clear conscience. Another example is 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 12, where Paul writes and he says, For our rejoicing is this, the testimony of our conscience, that in simplicity and godly sincerity, not with fleshly wisdom, but by the grace of God, we have had our conversation in the world and more abundantly to you word. And so they, they, he says the, the testimony of our conscience are, he says in uh, Romans chapter, I believe, 9, are, are con my conscience bearing witness. What is that? Well, we know that the conscience is the witness that says guilty, guilty, right? The example we have is when uh, the men brought the woman who was caught in the act of adultery to Jesus Christ. And Moses says, stone her, what do you say? He said, he that is without sin, let him cast the first stone. And the Bible says that they departed the older to the younger. Why? Being convicted by their own conscience. They were convicted. They were guilty. Their conscience says, you're guilty. You're not without sin. And so he that is without sin, let him cast the first stone. Nobody was able to throw a stone. And so pure, a pure conscience demands introspection. Uh, but there's two ways to that. There's two ways, toward God and toward man. The theme is found throughout the Word of God. It's not just towards man. It's not just towards God. It's towards both. Now, towards God, here the psalmist, he desires for God, basically, to reveal any wickedness. Notice he says, O Lord my God. He's talking to God. If I have done this, God, if there be iniquity in my hands, Lord, if I have rewarded evil unto him that was at peace with me. And so here he is, he is speaking with self-introspection to God, and he desires for God to reveal any wickedness in him. That's how we have a pure conscience. The psalmist, at another point, he says, uh, uh, Lord, see if there be any wicked way in me. The psalmist's desire was always, how, how can we have a pure conscience? We have a pure conscience when we ask the Lord, Lord, is there any sin in my life that I don't know about? Would you reveal it, please? That's a clear conscience toward God. 
But now also there is clear conscience toward man. Now toward God's here, he desires for God to reveal any wickedness. But when we think about a pure conscience toward men, that means that toward men, here the psalmist, he examines his past actions towards his fellow man. He says, if I have done this, if there be iniquity in my hands, if I have rewarded evil unto him that was at peace with me, notice verse 4, yea, I have delivered him that without cause is mine enemy. You see what he's saying? I believe that's a reference to Saul. I delivered him when I had the opportunity to kill him. My actions toward men prove that I have a clear conscience toward men. Does that make sense here? He, he, uh, and often we may do that with one or the other. Uh, we may say, uh, well, as long as I don't have any conflict in the world, then that means I'm right with God. Not necessarily. And we can say, well, I'm right with God, uh, or I'm right with God, so therefore it doesn't matter whether I'm right with men or whether my actions uh, are good or bad towards men, as long as I'm right with God. No, the conscience must be void of offense towards God and towards man. And for David, it was both. He asked God, God, would you reveal if this is something that I've done, and then he examines his own actions and says, look, it seems to me that I've been pretty faithful, that my conscience is void of offense toward man, because when I had the opportunity to take personal revenge, I did not take it. I delivered him. That without cause was my enemy. By the way, Saul, by the way, David had come very close in the palace by the spears. Saul almost killed him a number of times. He could have justified it and said, well, that would have been self-defense. It was either me or him. The Psalms, you find that running through the Psalms a number of times. Another example is Psalm 59.3 where David says, For lo, they lie in wait for my soul. The mighty are gathered against me, not for my transgression, nor for my sin, O Lord. So we see here that sorrow can be turned to joy when there is a pure conscience. And a pure conscience demands introspection. And that means toward God, God is there anything, and toward men when we examine our own actions. But there's a second point here I think that we can make. And that is this, that a pure conscience is not, a pure conscience is not a shield from the attacks of the wicked. A pure conscience is not a shield from the attacks of the wicked. Now what do I mean by that? Well, he says, Lord, if I have done this, verse 3, if there be iniquity in my hands, if I have rewarded evil unto him that was at peace with me, then let the enemy persecute my soul and take it, yea, let him tread down my life upon the earth and lay mine honor in the dust. And so he says here, look, if I have done this thing, then I deserve this treatment. But by the way, he didn't. His conscience towards God and towards man was clean. It was pure. It was void of offense. But notice he's still dealing with the trouble. So a pure conscience then is not a shield from the attacks of the wicked. He's clear. There's no blame that can be attributed to David in his conflict with Saul. It was all of Saul. But just because he had a clear conscience 
did not shield him from the attacks of the wicked. And sometimes I fear that if we're not careful, we might think, well, I just don't, I, I haven't done anything wrong. And this is happening to me. This person is mistreating me. I think I'm clear towards God. I'm clear towards men. I'm not aware of anything that I've done. And can I say that the attacks of the wicked is not there because that's why you've done something wrong? By the way, often I believe throughout the Word of God we see that there is a pattern that those who do what is right often comes, come under the attacks of the wicked even though they have a clear conscience toward God and toward man. But sometimes we might think that as long as we do things right, then there's going to be no trouble in our lives. And that's not the case here. I want you to turn with me. We'll close here in Joshua chapter 22. In Joshua chapter 22. Uh, the tribe of Reuben, the tribe of Gad, and the tribe and the half tribe of Manasseh. Uh, basically, they, there's a conversation going on. I won't read this. It's a long chapter there, but I want you to notice verse 21 and 22 of Joshua chapter 22. They're talking about uh, making an altar, a sacrifice to the Lord. Notice verse 21. Then the children of Reuben and the children of Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh answered and said unto the heads of the thousands of Israel, The Lord God of gods, the Lord God of gods, He knoweth, and Israel he shall know, if it be in rebellion, or if in transgression against the Lord. Save us not this day. That we have built us an altar to turn from following the Lord, or if to offer thereon burnt offerings, or meat offerings, or if to offer peace offerings thereon, let the Lord himself require it. You notice what he says is, they're basically saying, we're going to do what is right. We're going to serve the Lord. But if we're in rebellion, and if we're in transgression against the Lord, then we make a commitment now. God, don't save us. If we are to blame, and if God allows us to be judged by another nation or another people, if we fall in rebellion, Lord, don't save us. Now, the wonderful thing is we know that often in God's Word, when men rebelled against God, and after that men repented, God delivered. And God is gracious, uh, much more gracious than I think any of us would be. But I think here this conveys the attitude of the psalmist when he says, Lord, if I have done those things, then, yeah, let, 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 let this happen to me. Let me not be delivered. Let my soul be in anguish. Let my life return to the ground. And, and let that happen to me. And I, I wonder how often we would be willing to say that. Because I think the tendency in our lives is to say something happens. Well, I, I don't deserve to go through this. I shouldn't be going through this. And I think that we have to, at that moment, have that time of self-introspection and say, 
am I am I clear? Because between God and, and with man, and I have to be willing to say that Lord, if I'm not clear, if my conscience is not clear before God and man, then maybe if I go through this is a good thing. Maybe if I go through this, that's the right thing. Because I've not done things with a clear conscience. Are we willing to say that? That's a hard thing to say, isn't it? Because the flesh, often we want to do our own thing, and then we want to call on God when we want to call on God to deliver us. When we've brought trouble on ourselves. And so may the Lord help us. Now, he says here, if there be iniquity in my hands. I think that should always be a question. By the way, we should not judge other people when they go through difficulties and say, hey, that person is going through difficulties, that's probably because of their sin in their lives. That's not our call. I think the book of Job makes that clear. That is not our call to make. But if you and I go through difficulties, it is our call to make to the Lord personally and say, Lord, is, is this because of me? That should be an option. We should at least ask the Lord and say, Lord, is this because I've done something? And I think that is the fitting response because we find it over and over again in the book of Psalms.